0: She's saying, oh, your dad's at our house. The firemen are there. They're getting it taken care of. And I said, well, where's my mom? As I'm asking this question, Mrs. Idell says, oh, your mom wasn't home from work yet. Shelly
1: punches her sister's leg. Lisa locks eyes with her. And Shelly says,
0: shut up. Mom was home when I left. Her face turns white. We both know exactly what happened.
1: This episode is brought to you by The Parlor Hair and Body Salon. With a quick reminder, it's okay to take time for yourself. Hi, I'm Chelsea. You're listening to Beyond the Picket Fence, where you're invited to take a break from keeping it together. Let's get real. When you read a post that begins with, When my father murdered my mother you're bound to want to find out more information. You know, get the whole story. I invited Shelly on my show. She is newly an author and hopeful that her story will help others. I'm curious, how does a girl with such a story end up okay? To answer this question, here she is.
0: Hi, I'm Shelly Edwards-Jorgensen. I just finished publishing my memoir, Beautiful Ashes. And I'm a stepmom, a grandma, and an aunt of many. I got my undergraduate degree in engineering from BYU, and I spent 20 plus years as an engineer in the auto industry. And I also got my MBA along the way, so I I got into finance a little bit. I love building things and creating things. I'm a woodworker. I have actually made lots of things on the lathe, which is kind of strange for a woman. (laughs) I love ATVing and jet skiing, and, and the water is my solace in the summer. The Great Lakes, if you've never been, you're missing out. I'm just so happy to be here and, and participating in this podcast with you, Chelsea. And excuse my voice, everybody. I've had a sinus infection this week.
1: Since the first information I had about this woman was that her dad murdered her mom, of course I wanted to go back and understand the preface and then hear the whole story.
0: It definitely started in my childhood. My dad was a Dr. Jekyll Mr. Hyde alcoholic. He became very abusive when he drank. And my whole life, I grew up defending my mother. My sister started because she's two years older than me. And she used to send me to my room, actually, so she could intervene as like a seven-year-old, right? And so... As my sister and I got older, we both got involved physically breaking up these fights. And I grew up protecting my mom. And my sister grew up protecting me and my mom. And it got progressively worse. His drinking got worse. His outbursts got worse. The violence got worse. And I remember actually being as young as six years old. The first time, my dad threatening to kill us and burn the house down. And we fled that night. I talk about that story in the book. We fled that night, but we came back. There was this sense of normalcy. You didn't really understand that that behavior wasn't normal. And you were trained time and time and time again to not talk about it. My dad would try to kill my mom on a Friday night and then Saturday morning we'd wake up to a huge homemade breakfast that you sat out as a family for. Where my dad's cooking hash browns from scratch and whatnot, and you said nothing. And it was never talked about. And it you just went on. And I refer to him in the book as the morning after breakfasts. And this was just a pattern. And my parents, and like I said, it got worse and worse as I got older. I remember their even to the point that when I was probably around 10 or maybe 11-ish, my mom and sister and I would retreat to the master bedroom. And my mom would say, you know, one of these days, you girls aren't going to be here and he's going to kill me. And I even remember that my mom would started considering divorce at that point.
1: Keep in mind, her parents were married in 1960. So by this time, it was the early 80s. Divorce was very uncommon. Shelly had only one friend whose parents had been divorced.
0: And I remember my sister and I begging my mom, no, 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 we'll protect you. Don't get a divorce. Just as much as my mom didn't want to be the first divorce in the family, I didn't want to be that kid from a broken home. So for me and my sister, we, we pledged to protect my mother. And you know, looking back as an adult, that's insane. But that was the position that we took, you know, because we also loved our father.
1: Can we just think about this for a second? The poor girls were more scared to be the kids from a broken home than to live with their abusive father. I love how she acknowledged that hindsight as twenty twenty. Of course, we can now see how insane this was, but When you're just a child, even when your father is scary to be around, it's natural human tendency to want connection and togetherness. So her mother stayed.
0: My mom didn't want to be the first divorce in the family, but yet she became the first murder. So I'm glad that there's things that are changing, but there's really a lot of things that still need to change. That's why I'm trying to share my story is For a myriad of reasons, but one is to say that domestic violence is an issue that happens so much more frequently than anybody even knows. Nobody knew that this level of violence was going on in my home, not even my closest friends. We grew up in this violence our whole lives, but it was so normal that we thought it was okay.
1: I wanted to know more. I am so Lucky and blessed to have come from a very loving home. But I know many struggle with this, and apparently more than we even know. So she opened up further to help me understand.
0: At first you assume that that's that's going on in everybody's life to some degree. It's as you get older and you start realizing that it's not but you're so accustomed to it that it is your normal. And it is your family. I loved my dad, even though I was afraid of my dad. I just hated his behaviors. And the thing with domestic violence is the extreme violence doesn't happen. I mean, in some families it does happen every day, which is horrendous. In my family, it didn't happen every day, but the potential for it to happen was there every day. So you become accustomed to walking on eggshells. He was a Dr. Jekyll, Mr. Hyde. I mean, he was the same guy that would go to the beach with us in the summer in Lake Huron by our cottage, and he would let us ride on his back like he was Shamu while he was swimming underwater. You know, but yet at the same time, we're fleeing from him in the middle of the night because he's threatening to kill us. So there's this huge confusion that goes on in your head as, which one are you? Are you the the guy that's going to rub my legs after we go to Disney World and I'm having leg cramps for hours? Or are you the guy that's threatening to kill me? You're trying to kill my mother. Who are you? You become accustomed to behaving a certain way as to not upset the apple cart. And so there's the threat of violence all the time, which is abuse in its, you know, fundamental form. And at least in my experience, I was kind of trained that you don't talk about your feelings or concerns about it. Because there was no resolution, and then as a child, you're powerless to change anything anyway, because you're not making the decisions the adults are.
1: Wait, she mentioned he was threatening to kill their mother multiple times? How scary. She witnessed so much in her 15 years with this situation. And this is fair warning, this next bit is pretty graphic, and could be triggering for sure.
0: His go-to move was strangulation. I can't begin to count how many times I stopped my dad from strangling my mother, suffocating her with a pillow, trying to rip her tongue out with his hands, you name it. My sister and I got in the mix every time. And this was our normal. It was always after drinking, always.
1: October 14th, 1985, just shy of her parents' 25 year anniversary. Shelly was 15 years old, sophomore. Her sister, a 17-year-old senior. That's when it happened.
0: That day, my dad ended up murdering my mother and burning our house down. Exactly what he had threatened to do hundreds of times for almost as long as I can remember. What happened that day was that my sister had gotten in some trouble at school. So I knew that there was a potential to be a problem
1: Lisa, her older sister, went to varsity basketball practice right after school. Shelly had come home on the bus since she was in JV, and their practice was just a little bit later. Her dad should have been leaving for work, but...
0: When I got home, he was standing in the kitchen, drunk, making dinner, making meatloaf.
1: Is anyone else intrigued that she remembered the exact meal he was making? Or is that just me? Trauma is so interesting.
0: He was standing in the kitchen, drunk. Making dinner, making meatloaf, but drunk because of what happened with my sister earlier in the day.
1: Lisa had been with some friends between classes. They stopped at a convenient slash party store, and one of the friends decided it was a great idea to shoplift some beer. And when they all got arrested, guess who got to go pick Lisa up? Yep, Dr. Jekyll. Then... Mr. Hyde went home and must have started drinking to deal with his negative emotions. Shameless plug right here. If you want to hear more about drinking to hide from your emotions, listen to the episode called The Felon. And it's so easy to judge Shelly's dad and hate him. But as an empath, I'm positive that we could dig into her dad's story and unpack the sad life he must have had to lead a life where he hurt and even murdered his wife. But alas, this is not his story. This is Shelly's. Shelly gets home at 3 p.m. And her dad is surprisingly home. And in her words, hammered.
0: To the point that he was actually crying, asking me, well, where did I go wrong as a parent? I'm like, oh, well, let me. I don't want to answer that one. (laughs) And so I basically retreated upstairs so I could avoid him. And my mom was at work. So I called her to arrange rides for basketball practice and whatnot, and she asked if my dad was still home. And I said yes, and so she asked to talk to him. So I put her on the phone with my dad, and this is back in the old school days where, you know, landline, and so I was upstairs in their bedroom, and the only other phone was in the kitchen. And so he, I waited for my dad to pick up the phone in the kitchen, and I hung up upstairs, which I wish I would have listened. But I I snuck downstairs into the hallway so I could eavesdrop and listen to my dad's side of the conversation because I, I could read the tea leaves enough to know that there was a potential problem brewing. So I listened to my dad's side of the conversation, and he tells my mom what happened with my sister that day at school. And I could tell... my mom was getting angry. Like any mother would if their 17-year-old got arrested for shoplifting beer, you know, she was getting angry. The odd thing was, is my dad was getting mad that my mom was getting mad because he felt like the police had scared them enough. Lisa actually wasn't one of the people who stole anything. She was just with the girls and driving the car. And what I heard my dad say was that he had promised my sister that he wouldn't say anything to my mom until the three of them could sit down and talk about it together. And so now I could tell that he was agitated, that he thought my mother would confront my sister and break his trust with her. So again... I've seen this scenario happen. My dad's hammered. My mom's upset. I've seen this happen enough times to know that there's a potential problem.
1: Shelly's ride to basketball practice was running late, and she was upstairs still avoiding her dad when she heard the garage indicating her mother was home.
0: And I thought, oh, crap. I need to create a diversion. So I ran downstairs. I grabbed my geometry book. My mom was the one who helped me with math. And I'm like, mom, I have this geometry test tomorrow. Can you help me with this problem? My dad's still sitting in the kitchen in his bathrobe, still drinking Manhattans, which are a very strong drink. And my mom and I sat down literally three feet from him at the kitchen table to do this fake math problem. My mom proceeds to help me. I'm assessing the situation. My parents aren't even talking to each other. My sister was supposed to be home any minute, so I was expecting her to be home. My parents weren't actively in a fight. Next thing you know, my ride shows up. I kiss my mom goodbye, tell her I love her. I run out the front door. That's the last time I saw her.
1: Whoa. There just aren't any words. Next thing she knows, Her and her sisters were being picked up from basketball due to a fire at their house. To anyone, a fire is serious and scary. But it meant more to these sisters. They knew exactly what that meant for their mother.
0: We're driving home, and I'm asking Mrs. Idell, well, where's my mom? Because she's saying, oh, your dad's at our house. The firemen are there. They're getting it taken care of. And I said, well, where's my mom? And I, I kid you not, this is an 80s song. And anybody who grew up in the 80s will know this song. It goes, the roof, the roof, the roof is on fire. I don't need no water. Let the beep, beep, beep burn, right? So that's on the radio. Lisa's singing the, the lyrics to the song as I'm asking this question. And Mrs. Idell says, oh, your mom wasn't home from work yet. Shelley
1: punches her sister's leg. Lisa locks eyes with her, and Shelly says,
0: Shut up. Mom was home when I left. Her face turns white. We both know exactly what happened at that point, but then the denial starts setting in. You don't want that to be true. So we go to the house, and it's just a... Basically, there's... The police have the roads blocked off, the fire trucks... ABC, NBC, all the major news vans in in Metro Detroit were there because we lived in a pretty prominent neighborhood for the time. And it was a circus. They kind of sequestered us so we couldn't get close to the house. I snuck out. I actually saw them bring the body bag out before they told us that my mom was dead. But I knew, I knew the moment that I was told that she wasn't home from work yet.
1: 15 to 20 minutes later, the police came in and told the family and neighbors their mother had indeed been inside the house.
0: That night on the 11 o'clock news, it was broadcast. I mean, there was literally video of her house engulfed in flames. And they announced that my mom was dead and that fire was suspicious. But my dad was not arrested charged with anything and this was October it wasn't till February that he was arrested and charged
1: so if he wasn't arrested what did happen that night how do you go on regularly these poor girls went home with this man this murderer but their father whom they feared and at the same time
0: loved how
1: confusing
0: My sister and I had to live with my dad for the next two and a half years before his trial. We had to bail him out of jail. This story is insane. I mean, literally, that night we went to my aunt and uncle's house. We were there for a couple weeks.
1: They had family friends, neighbors actually, that allowed this newly single father to move into and rent a house they owned that was empty at the time.
0: So what does he do? He rents my best friend Linda's house that I could look out my window and see my burned out house. Then what he started to do is send me over to the house to get freaking canned goods out of the basement. (gasps) No. Yeah, Uh, many times. Then the first time he sent me there again, I'm 15. It's dark, cold and snowy because it's the end of October, beginning of November in Michigan. And when I say the house was burned, it was badly burned because he had used accelerant everywhere. And a haunted house has nothing on what I experienced there. I mean, this is the place that my mother died. At that point, I didn't know she had been murdered. Well, I did know she had been murdered, but I, it hadn't been proven. And I'm now you're sending me there in the dark. It's boarded up. Every wall is black. They're literally bulbs hanging by wires was the, was the light. It was a nightmare.
1: At this point, her dad became a full-fledged alcoholic. He took an early retirement and yes, the girls continued to live with him. Can you imagine that? Living with the man who you knew killed your mother?
0: It's really unreal that we were there. And for some reason, he focused his abuse and attention more on my sister than he did me. And I think that's because my sister always was my mother's first line of defense, my mom's confidant, and I was a little bit more like him. I liked to build things. I was always the helper, you know, finishing the basement. I mean, he taught me how to do electrical wiring when I was six years old. I could put in an outlet when I was six. (laughs) So yeah, there's a lot of tales to the story.
1: I couldn't handle it anymore. I needed to get to the part of the story where he finally got caught. The fire was October of 85. In February of 86, he was finally arrested and charged with murder and arson.
0: So I was a sophomore. It wasn't until February of my senior year that his trial was. It was just this long process. Things were terrible. I was reading about my life in the newspaper just Like everybody else, I had to eavesdrop on conversations to get information. And so my senior year, I had an opportunity to move to California with one of my good friends and her family. So I did that. And Lisa moved out with her best friend at the time.
1: Finally, they were out. Mind you, this is years later. And just because she moved out, the nightmare wasn't over. Shelly had to testify against her own father in his trial.
0: Now, the only time the police interviewed me was the day after the fire. Now, the day after the fire, they didn't know that this was a domestic violence situation. They found out because my grandmother and my aunt and other people had written letters and told them stuff. They never once came back to ask my sister and I further questions. So I'm in California thinking I'll never have to testify. Number one, I'm a minor. Number two, they've never questioned me again. It's been two and a half years. And my dad calls me and he says, Oh, Shelly, you need to come home. You've been subpoenaed. Like, okay. And he's like, I got you a plane ticket for Friday. This was like a Tuesday.
1: Shelly takes the flight home. Her dad gets her from the airport, and guess who she's staying with? Yep, good old daddy-o. This story is just so insane to me. So my audio didn't end up recording very well during the interview, so you can't hear all of my reactions to her as she talks, but when she's laughing, it's usually because I am freaking out on the other side. I'm just so shocked how much time she's spent with him, even before the trial. Anyway, He gives her the address for a lawyer's office the next day. She goes to prep for the trial.
0: I was assuming I was going to his lawyer's office. Well, no, no, no. I get to this lawyer's office. She starts showing me this evidence. Like, there was this stain, probably three feet in diameter, clearly a blood stain, in the living room. And our living room was two stories high. It had a circular staircase. Well, I was in the living room moments before I left. And she said, was this stain in the carpet before you left the house? And I said, no. She said, would you have noticed it? I'm like, yeah, I walked right through this. I walked right through this area. And when I came down the stairs, you overlooked the whole room. So she tells me, she says, well, the night of the fire... The police took this picture, and a week later, they went to go back to get a sample of what this stain was, and the carpet was missing. (laughs) So that's problem number one. Problem number two was my dad's story was that he had left the house to go shopping for heating supplies for our cottage and came back and the house was on fire. Well, you could go out one street of our neighborhood and then circle back around and come in a different way. 10 minutes before he was seen coming back, one of my friends from kindergarten and her mom were leaving their driveway and they saw him leaving the neighborhood. So there's another piece of information that I had no idea that my friend and her mom saw him 10 minutes before the neighbor saw him come back. So there was no way that his story was true. Another piece of information I hadn't known for two and a half years. And so she's showing me all this evidence and I'm like, this is not the defense attorney. I look at her desk. It's the prosecutor. They were prepping me to be the star witness to prove first-degree murder for the prosecution. It was in that moment that I'm coming to terms with, I cannot live in this denial of trying to believe my dad's story because now I have all this evidence that just proves that it's a total lie. Even though in my gut I always knew it was, but I wanted to believe it so badly.
1: And Monday comes, trial day. Shelly spent eight hours on the stand giving this testimony to prove the first-degree murder of her mother by her father. Then she went home. Remember to where she would return?
0: And I had to go home with my dad that night. And not one person was concerned that a 17-year-old being used to prove first-degree murder on their father was in danger.
1: Again, I have so many questions. Did her dad know he had sent her to the other attorney's office? Was he mad at her after her testimony?
0: Was she safe? He had to have known who he sent me to. But I don't know if he just was so arrogant. I don't know if he didn't know the evidence they had. I don't know what he thought.
1: She didn't sleep alone
0: there that night, though. The craziest thing is, is I had my friends spend the night with me. And their parents let them. Now, whose parents (laughs) let them?
1: You cannot make this stuff up. Well, whether you love your parents or not, I think as a child it would be so difficult to testify against your own blood. Can you imagine being in her position? And we've learned from previous episodes that the courtroom is not a kind or comfortable place to be.
0: So I was a basket case on the stand. The judge keeps yelling at me because I'm not talking loud enough. And so at one point, he takes a recess to excuse the jury to make it easier for me to give my testimony. I'm like, it's my dad glaring at me across the room, and I know that every single thing I'm saying is convicting him. So the jury leaves for a big portion of my testimony where I'm talking about these historical events. Like the event I talked about where we fled when I was six and other historical events that I had never talked about publicly. I never told a soul about and I'm being asked on the stand about these things. And I'm scared crapless because I have to go home with him that night and I know what I'm saying. And I actually found out when I wrote my book, when I went to the courthouse and got transcripts that on a sidebar, when they were bringing the jury back in at the end of my testimony, my dad's lawyer talked to the judge and got the judge to throw out 90% of my testimony that I risked my life to give because I could only remember that it was the summer of 1976, the first time he threatened to kill us and burn the house down. Not that it was July 23rd, but it was I could remember it was the summer. I could remember the color car. I remembered why It was 1976. I could remember all the details, but I couldn't remember a specific date. Boom. They threw out my testimony. Every single one of those testimonies that I gave, risking my life to give, got tossed out. No.
1: This is a travesty. That is a lot of trauma to put a 17-year-old girl through. If the jury had been in the room, they would have heard it. And they can't unhear it, even if it's not on the record. At least it all could have meant something. Law can really be cutthroat. Yikes. Before we get the verdict, though, let's take a break. Do you ever feel a little bit exhausted by your social media feed? Seeing everyone else's perfect moments and forget to remember that they have a whole life going on behind the scenes? Well, join us in our free Facebook community, this community is our secret little place to escape all of the perfection we see here on social media and connect with women just like you who are ready to be done comparing and start being compassionate to themselves and others. Find it at facebook.com slash groups slash beyond the picket fence. Link also in the show notes. Can't wait to see you in there. We are back. Shelley testified against her father, but a lot of her testimony got thrown out. After some time, The verdict was in, and it was time to hear the sentence.
0: He didn't get first-degree murder because of it. He got second. He got second-degree murder and arson. And mind you, he got a total of 13 years. That's it. So she spends the night.
1: Lucky her, she had a friend stay with her again. Crazy. Her dad and her just kind of avoided each other. The next day, she left, and that was kind of it. The entire trial was four or five weeks. Shelly testified somewhere in the middle, came back for the sentencing, and he went to prison. Even though he has only a 13-year sentence, he ended up passing away during his time. With history of smoking and drinking, he got stomach cancer, and it just kind of spread everywhere and eventually took his life. With all of that behind her, I asked, was testifying against your dad more difficult because you were scared that he had murdered your mom, or more difficult Because you loved him.
0: It was probably harder because I loved him. I mean, the threat was real. But I loved him. And I still love him. I've forgiven him too. Ah, I got goosebumps.
1: What a gift forgiveness can be. Yes, for others. But truly, it's a gift you can give yourself. If we can forgive, we can lean into compassion and understanding. It helps me to really try to put myself in their shoes and understand where they're coming from. It doesn't always mean excusing the harm done or making up with them, trusting and being best friends with them again, but it does give you peace inside to go on with your own life.
0: The thing that I learned about this is, you know, it's really easy to be a judge, right? And I think it comes too easily for us to judge. What I've learned is that I can't explain where the accountability begins. Just to give you a little backstory on my dad, right? So his biggest demon was his alcoholism, but his dad was an abusive alcoholic. Well, his dad was an orphan and my dad was a Korea War vet. My grandfather was a World War I vet. So where does the accountability begin? see what I'm saying? You can't assess where the accountability begins because everybody has a story. Nobody has a perfect family. Nobody has anything perfect in life. And it's, it just snowballs and everybody is different, right? We're all unique. We all have different strengths and weaknesses. We all have the different ability to cope with different things. And we all make different choices. And of course we all have to be accountable but I guess what I'm saying is it's my responsibility to, to let God be the judge because he understands the bigger picture that I don't fully understand. And the other thing I learned about forgiveness is forgiveness is not for him. It doesn't do my dad any good that I've forgiven him. It does me good that I've forgiven him. I mean, he's none the wiser. I mean, he's dead. He, he died when I was 27 years old. So that forgiveness allowed me to free up space in my head, in my emotions, and letting it go gave me back my peace. And so that's what forgiveness is for. It's for you.
1: Seriously, what a great lesson in forgiveness. Hopefully, we don't have something this huge to be forgiving others for but it's definitely inspiring. If she can forgive, I can practice better forgiveness too. While this is all lovely and beautiful, I knew this forgiveness doesn't just come overnight. I wanted to know, how did she get to this point? Was there a lot of emotions to sort through? Anger maybe? And how did she do it?
0: Of course there was anger. Anger at everything. I lost my mother that day. I lost my family that day. I lost my home and all my worldly possessions that day, which subsequently got stolen again and again, which you could read in the book because things kept getting worse in a sense. And so I've gone through a lot of loss and I was angry, but I have the kind of personality that I, I don't really express anger very easily or quickly. I'm a very patient person and I'm a very understanding person. And so I struggled a long time with not being able to forgive a lot of things. I didn't mention this. I mean, I'm also a victim of sexual assault and molestation. And so I had those issues. And so I went through a long period of time where I actually was really miserable. I couldn't get past a lot of things that happened in my childhood. In the year that my mom died, The year that I was 15, I was raped two different times. And I was molested when I was 11 and 4. And so I had those underlying issues, too. What? Did you hear how casually
1: she just dropped that bomb? As if her story wasn't heavy enough, she dealt with this, too? If she was willing, I asked her to share more. And my heart ached for her all over again.
0: So at four years old, I was molested by a teenager at a a summer camp that we used to go to. I didn't really realize that until I was a lot older. I couldn't, didn't remember that, but, and I don't even really talk about that in the book. I do talk about what happened when I was 11. We went on a family vacation to Mexico and an acquaintance of my parents molested me actually multiple times. And then July of 85, which is three months before my mom died, we were on another family vacation in England and I'd gone to a pub with my grandmother was from Scotland and so we had family in England. And so at the end of our trip, we were staying at my mom's cousin's house who had sons roughly my sister and I's age. Well, there's no drinking age really in England. And so my sister and my cousins, I guess, We went to this pub for young adults down the street from their house. I thought it was real cool having my first beer, you know, that I could order legally. (laughs) And I was dancing with this guy that was in his, like, early 20s. And he ended up raping me in the field outside this bar. Of course, because of my training, I say nothing. I tell nobody. I go in. I deal with it. I don't talk to Three months later, my mom is murdered. Then in February, my dad had planned for my sister and I and him to go to Mexico because my parents used to go to the same place in Acapulco every year. And that's why I was molested when I was 11, because that was our Christmas big gift that year. And we got to go with my parents on their trip. Well, my dad got arrested right before the trip. I think the police got wind that he was going to Mexico. So when I get there, the same guy that molested me when I was 11, I avoid him for the whole week. I talk about this in the book and he ends up raping me in Mexico. And then I end up on the roof contemplating killing myself because of what I just experienced and everything piling and piling and piling. And I didn't do it, obviously. But that wasn't the first time. And so I got to a point when I was in my mid-30s that I was still miserable. I started doing therapy when I was in college to try to process all this and, and get past it. But it wasn't until I found the right counseling and I also started working on my relationship with God. I always believed in God. And I was faithful to my religion and my covenants. And I believed and I did all these things, but I had a fundamental trust issue. So it it wasn't until I was able to get the right trauma counseling. And what I've learned is there's no one size fits all. Okay. First of all, I think talking does help. But for me, what helped was all these other different modalities that I learned. I did talk therapy on and off for like 15 years, but I was still praying to die every day. I was miserable. But I finally found the therapist that did, and this is in the early 2000s, so I was like 2004, 2005, who did EMDR, which is now kind of a mainstream modality. I was so numb that at first I couldn't use EMDR because I couldn't even articulate my feelings. So I started doing a a different modality which I'll swear by for the rest of my life. It's called NET or neuroemotional technique. It's very different. You know, I'm an engineer, like I said at the beginning, so I like to know the way things work. And so putting aside that need to understand how things work and just accepting something outside the box helped me just believe that these worked because They were working for me, even though I couldn't explain how. And so NET really changed my life. I did it twice a week for two and a half years. When I started doing it, I was praying to die every day. When I ended doing it, I was happy and whole, and I have been since.
1: Okay, guys, I had high hopes to look up NET therapy, NET, and explain it better here. But it's actually pretty complex, so I'll just try to find a good reference and put the link in the show notes. So Shelly was finally feeling whole at the age 37 years old.
0: During that time of intensive work on my trauma, I also was working on a relationship with God. I was working on the trust. I was working on changing my mindset of looking at things differently. And it's been a profound life-altering perspective.
1: For someone who's been faithful and believes in God, but still feels miserable, what are the changes in faith and perspective that need to be shifted? I'm genuinely curious. Sometimes I catch myself believing if I just pray and read my scriptures and go to church, I shouldn't have doubt or fear or depression or a sick son dying in the hospital, right? Actually, having faith is sometimes letting God's plan play out. Sometimes it means getting professional help, not just praying it all away. So really, what had to shift for Shelly?
0: For me, what it was mainly is I started accepting basic principles. Like I started accepting that God knows better than me. I might have had this plan in my head because I'm a planner, so I might've had this plan in my head that this is how I wanted my life to be. Well, my life wasn't following anything that I had planned. And so once I learned to trust and accept that God is smarter than me, he tells us over and over again that he loves you. So believing that he loves you and that he wants what's best for you was for me, I said, okay, I'm going to trust this. And as I started to allow that trust to grow in me, I started accepting things. And then, you know, everyone says, oh, everything happens for a reason. Well, that is true. I've learned that. I started looking at things differently. I know I'm a weirdo now because I look at all adversity as an opportunity for growth. Every single thing is an opportunity for growth. Now, if you believe... That we're all divine children with a Heavenly Father who loves us all equally. As a parent, He's gonna give us all the same opportunities for growth. And if the goal is for us to be as much like Christ as we possibly can be, we're gonna have to learn Christ like attributes. Well, how do you teach long suffering? How do you teach endurance? How do you teach patience? How do you gain strength of character? How do you learn empathy, compassion, charity? All of these attributes of Christ is required of all of us to learn. So everything in your life is designed to give you an opportunity to learn something. So when I stopped asking the question of why, which is the first question we always ask, right? Why is this happening to me? Why? Well, when I started accepting that everything was happening to me so I could learn something, I started saying, okay, Heavenly Father, what? What and how? What am I supposed to be learning? And how do I use this to help myself and others? Because it's not just about me. It's about others. We're here to help each other. We're a family. And so I started looking at things and, and some things I still haven't figured out, but I've accepted that I will. And then the other principle that got me through a lot of things was the principle of the balance scale, right? The scales of justice. You have in front of every courthouse, justice is blind, right? She's got a blindfold on, she's holding the scales. So again, being an engineer, If Heavenly Father is both just and merciful, then this principle has to be true. If this side of the scale gets piled up with crap, adversity, pain, sorrow, misery, and the scales are like this, what does he promise? Eventually it's gonna be offset. So I started saying, okay, I'm okay. Keep piling up this side because that means this side has to have more to make it balanced. That was my engineer's brain thinking that. It started with small things like the anecdotal, you know, there must needs be opposition in all things. And, you know, physics teaches you that there's equal and opposite forces. So if you think about equal and opposite forces, if you're gonna be propelled to this level of of a high, you know, whether it be a happiness, joy or whatever, You have to experience the opposite because that is an equal and opposite force, which is a law of the universe.
1: (laughs) I absolutely love when an engineer or someone, as I have deemed worldly smart, ties faith into science. This is a law of the universe, people. It, for some reason, helps my faith. Well, if what you've heard wasn't quite enough, I had been reading her social media postings, so I know there's so much of her story we didn't even touch on. She's had many medical issues over the years, went on a 10 year period without even one date, finally met her husband when she was 40 and married at 41. She got very sick on her honeymoon and dealt with many medical problems more recently, even. When it comes to adversity, she has had her fair share. I wondered where is she finding all of her strength?
0: And I didn't talk about this Is I had some experiences with my mom along the way. And right at the beginning, when all this started happening, my mom came to me a few times. So right after my mom's funeral, I was a three sport athlete and my mom never missed anything. And so the first basketball game after my mom's funeral, I had stole the ball, I was driving the lane, and I hear my mama's voice and I look up, I feel her, I see her and she's cheering for me in the stands. I, of course, brick this shot because I'm like, what in the world? I'm 15. I have no idea that this stuff is real. And this feeling comes over me. It says, Shelly, I love you and everything will be Okay. Okay, so I go in the locker room at halftime. Don't tell a soul. I think I'm going crazy. A couple weeks later, I'm at the mall, Christmas shopping. I walk past my mom's favorite shoe store, and I look in, and I swear I saw her. So I run around this bench that's in the middle of the way. I go in this shoe store, and um, not a soul in there. Even the workers were in the back. I'm like, Shelly, you're, you're nuts. You saw nothing. So as I'm walking out of the store, the sensation comes over me. I hear my mother's voice. Shelly, I love you. Everything will be okay. Okay. So again, I tell nobody about a month later. And again, this is I'm in the throes of hell at this point, right? The, I'm, this is when I'm 15. So about a month later, I'm laying in my bed at night and I'm miserable. I'm just miserable. I'm having reoccurring nightmares every day. And um, I'm laying on my left side and I'm, my back is to the door and my eyes are open and this light starts filling my room. So I thought, hmm, Lisa must be opening the door. So I roll over. No, this light is filling my room. The door is not open. And then my mom appears within this light and then I feel her in this peace and she just says to me, Shelly, I love you and everything will be okay. And then the light goes and she goes. Again, I tell nobody. Remember when she
1: said how the scale would balance? Well, with great hardship, Shelly has also been blessed with great miracles. Again. I will encourage you to read the rest of her stories in detail in her book. But I am just so inspired at how a woman who has been through the ringer can end up okay. If anyone has excuse to be depressed, angry, hard, hateful, you name it. If anyone has the excuse, it is this woman. But here she sits on a Zoom call teaching peace, forgiveness, compassion, grace, love, faith. The list goes on and on.
0: I'm so committed to trusting in Heavenly Father's plan for me. I fear nothing. So it is so freeing, and there's so much peace in having that kind of faith. I read this book. uh, It's called Believing Christ. And the one thing that stood out to me was, you know, so many of us believe that Christ exists. They believe in what he did. But they don't believe him they don't believe that that atonement has the power to heal you it does it has the power if you allow it and you learned how to apply it and learning how to apply it comes with trusting in it and believing in it faith precedes the miracle
1: we could have talked forever if i put in every incredible nugget this episode would have been two hours long. We weaved in and out of my negative beliefs that I should work on, discussing beautiful moments that surrounded our shared religion, the meaning of life, blah, blah, blah. On and on we talked. This conversation eventually led me to asking, what brings you joy now, Shelly?
0: This is gonna sound crazy, but now I derive joy out of helping others. And... I'm finding more joy in helping others than I thought was even possible. And I wouldn't be in a position to help others if I didn't experience what I've experienced. So it's a reciprocal blessing for enduring what I've endured. So now I'm in this unique position that I can share my story I can share what I've learned in the hopes that I can help somebody mitigate their pain faster than I did. And so I derive a lot of joy from doing that because I love people. I care about people. I have empathy. I've learned so much empathy. My first instinct is, what can I do to help you? And I know that There's a risk that if you are too empathetic or too willing to help that you can get used. That's not my problem. That's somebody else's problem. If they want to use me, that's on them. I mean, I try to set healthy boundaries so that doesn't happen, but that's not going to change how I am. I could be clearly jaded. I didn't even talk about some of the other ridiculousness that's happened in my, my life with with people stealing from orphans, our life savings. And I mean, I I didn't go into that. I've been victimized so many times. I could be severely jaded and think that everybody has an angle and not trust anybody, but I'm not like that at all. And I know that I'm an anomaly. I know that I'm the exception and not the rule, but it's not my responsibility to make sure that somebody else behaves a certain way. It's their responsibility to be accountable for their own behavior. It's my responsibility to be who I am and to be true to me, which is an empathetic, giving, caring person. And again, nobody's perfect, but I always try to look at things from other people's perspectives. I believe that everybody is doing their best, whether you think they're failing or they're not failing. I think that fundamentally, most people are trying their best. You can find
1: Shelly's book and other information as always in the show notes. I have been truly inspired and deeply hope to be like Shelly one day. I hope to never become jaded and to use what I've gone through to serve others. I'm seeking this firm faith and inner peace and each story you guys share with me teaches me so much. My life is so full because of your willingness to give me a glimpse into your lives. So wherever you are in your journey, headed into a trial in the middle or headed out, Just know you're not alone and it's okay not to be okay. Sometimes you don't have to keep it all together with that. I asked, what do you wish people saw beyond your white picket fence?
0: I think in general, or just the overall thing is I want people to know that hard things are actually good for you. They're good for all of us. They push us and they give us an opportunity for growth. If we choose to make them stepping stones instead of stumbling blocks, it comes down to your choice. And we all have the ability to make that choice. I have found for me that when I chose to learn, then I grew. But when I chose to wallow in self-pity, then I could wallow in self-pity for a long, long time. And I did that for a long time. But what I want people to know is don't be afraid of hard things, embrace them, choose to learn from them. And I guarantee you that you will be better and have a different perspective. The glass is refillable. It's not half empty, it's not half full, it's refillable.
1: Thanks for listening to another episode of Beyond the Picket Fence. Do you or someone you know have a story to share? Feel free to reach out to me through my Instagram, Facebook DMs, or through my website. And remember, be kind, because you never know what's going on for someone beyond the picket fence.